what we have been talking about in the past weeks, but what we'll be talking about also in the weeks coming ahead, is we were talking about some weeks ahead or weeks before about the church, and then we talked about the DNA of relationships. The DNA of relationships is that if the church has elements that are important in each one of them, the DNA relationship is that we are to be redemptive and restorative. Because if God redeems us, we are to be redemptive. If God has restored us in the image of his son, we need to be restorative towards others. Important that I am not setting up these sermon series to connect with one another, but I think God is doing some of that. Because without prayer, we're really nothing. And we need to be empowered with prayer, but the empowerment of God doesn't happen just on Sunday morning. I know we've been possibly been brought up that way thinking that. Because worship singing happens about 15 minutes of the week. The word happens a little bit longer than that. But the idea is that each one of us have a responsibility to leave this building and pray. Because the empowerment happens in the individual. Because we're the temple. Each one of us, when the Holy Spirit resides in us, we're the true temple of God. And what happens in each individual determines whether holiness and righteousness follows. Whether empowerment follows. And so it's important for us to recognize that it's not the exterior, but the interior. It's not what we do, but what's happening inside of what God is doing. So what we do outside should reflect what God is doing inside. And so I want to remind us as we move forward, it's important to keep that in mind. But first things first, I have a little story for you here, and I want to read it to you. It's a story I picked up uh, just Googling around, and it was kind of interesting when I Googled first things first. Story about a man who says, I once read of an amusing story about a farmer who told his wife as he tumbled into bed, I'll plow tomorrow. The next morning, as the story goes, he started to lubricate the tractor, but he needed oil. So he went to the shop to get it. On the way, he noticed that the chickens had not been fed. He started for the crib to get some corn, but he found some sacks there, which reminded him that the potatoes needed sprouting. He headed toward the potato pit. En route, he spotted the wood pile and remembered the shortage of kindling at the house. But he had to chop it first. And he had to go, he left to go get an axe in the chicken coop. And as he went for his axe, he met his wife who was feeding the pigs. With surprise, she asked, Have you finished the plowing already? Finished? Question mark. The farmer be- bellowed, I haven't even got time to get started. See, here's the thing. I know it's not supposed to be hilarious, but too often what we do is we have priorities in our lives. We have this list every day. And too often, the first thing on the list doesn't even get done because we're distracted by all the other elements in our lives. How often do we go through that every day? I know as a life of a pastor, a life of a father, a life of a husband, every day I have a plan. And then I find out it doesn't work out. (laughs) Whatever plan I had, it's erased because there's other priorities that end up coming up. And I can imagine each one of us go through that. But as you're looking at your outline, I ask a few questions. What does it mean to be prioritized? I mean, the definition says designate or treat 
as more important than other things. Keywords are emphasize, concentrate, put first, focus on, fast track. So what's the first thing that you do in the morning? Do you go for the coffee machine? Okay, I, I, I can empathize with that one. Although I'm trying to turn to green tea right now because I'm trying to eliminate some of my caffeine. What about your phone? Can I get a witness? Yes, amen. Okay, how about computers? Yes. How about your spouse? Although I would encourage you to first brush your teeth before you go kiss your spouse in the morning. What other things that you do, and you can answer that, or do you have someone that says, good morning, sunshine, so glad you're up this morning. I mean, you're not going to be that way because you need your coffee. But in every, any case, the question is, what's the priority? What are you prioritizing? What are you expediting? That's another word. In our society, we try to achieve tasks efficiently so we can accomplish more. So as we think about it, the White House, each White House administration has priorities. The administration sets them out. What happens? Many distractions. The president forgets that he has a Congress, and then he forgets that he has to deal with people. And so after he has all this list of priorities, we find out that, well, I thought President so-and-so was going to do A, B, and C, and it ends up it didn't happen. Then at the end of the four or eight years, they realize, they look back and go, Boy, I didn't get much done what I thought I was going to get done. Because priority, although you mean well and the intention is well, we end up turning back like the farmer, realizing we never started what we intended to start. And so it's important for us to to ask those questions. What are some of your basic priorities? You may ask yourself, you have a priority that's a short-term goal, long-term goal, just immediate goal. What are those things? It could be, I just need to spend more time with my spouse and children. I need to spend more time in the checkbook so it doesn't go off and I have to write off checks and then find out that the checks are bouncing. They're bouncing like a basketball. So I have to look at my checkbook more often. I've got to go and spend more time on, this, on the kids' sporting events. Or if you're a grandparent, same thing. You're spending time cleaning your house. Sometimes you realize, you look around and realize you haven't cleaned your house in a while. Or maybe it's just, you know, you're pulling the kids off of each other because they're fighting again. <laughs> Or because they're arguing again and you got to remind them, stop arguing. Will you stop arguing? And yet it's the same argument over and over again. You know, the count to one, two, three just doesn't work. So if you don't do one, two, three, you come up with the mean look. And if you don't have the mean look, you try to pull something else out. Off. If, you have a, if you have your gun sitting out on, I'm talking metaphorical. But if you're sitting there, you're trying to get some artillery to find out, I don't know what else to use. One, two, three, look uh, or something, I don't know. And they find you just said, I'm done. I don't know what else to do, but you're working through all of these things. But you have these lists, and you have a set goal each week. How about TV? Is one of your priorities to watch TV? (laughs) Do you know that, according to a Nielsen report, American adults are watching five hours and four minutes of television per day? That is 35 hours a week, slightly 77 days per year. Wow. So often what we do is we don't realize the things that we are doing maybe are not priority, but because we do it because they're pleasurable. And so I ask the question, what are God's priorities? As you're looking at your outline, what are God's priorities? 
And we know what God's priorities are. We hear it every week when you come to a gathering at church. You read it in the scriptures. But it's always important for us to be reminded quickly about that. But as we think about God's priorities, one thing that we have to understand is we have to succinct it into one thought. What's the first thing that God wanted to do when he was sitting in eternity past with the Son and the Holy Spirit? What was the one thing when he created the heavens and the earth? He created man. But he didn't create man so that man could rule over the earth and he could just allow him to do whatever he wants, nor was it an option for man to do what he wants. He gave him that free will, but yet God didn't create him for that priority. God created him with that priority to have a relationship with man. And as we understand that, it's important for us to grasp because too often we forget that the reason why we exist is to have relationship with God. And so as you look with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to go through just the first four verses and then we have another verse in chapter 7. But it's important for us to understand and realize how key this is. So in verse 1 it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways. That word many times, you can see it even interpreted as various times or various ways. Now what the author was saying was in various times he was highlighting the various times that God would reveal himself. We know that in the scripture of the Old Testament, as he was writing this, that there's a period of time from 2200 BC to 400 BC, roughly from Job to Nehemiah, that God was speaking to his people. And so in those many times, he would reveal himself in various ways. The various ways could be in a dream, through angels, a Christophany, a theophany, the presence of Christ in the Old Testament. But in any way, it's important for us to understand that God was doing it. Now, in the last days, he said, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Verse 2, but in these last days, the last days is referring to the redemption of Jesus Christ. So at any point when Christ came and he died on the cross, he rose from the dead and he's exalted and sitting at the right hand of the Father, those last days are in reference to any time following that, subsequent to that time. And so when you're looking at the last days, it can be any day, but it's a period of time. And so God's priority was to speak, and that's what he says in verse 2. He goes on to say this, he says even, he goes... He has spoken to us. The word spoken is important because God reveals himself. When God speaks something, it's eternal. You know, when we speak something, whether it be to our spouse, spouses or children, it doesn't last very long. I'm learning this as my children are getting older. I have one who's in college and another one who's almost 18 and I have a young man who, you know, if you have sons, they are different than the, the daughters. And so when you talk, they listen, but they're not listening. <laughs> they're hearing you, but they're not obeying. You know, in the Bible, it says that when God said, remember the covenant, really, that means that you're listening with the intent to obey. Boy, would I only hope my son would listen with the intent to obey. So what we have to do is we find this constantly repeating I need direction as a parent as well and I know many of you afterwards will probably say when we're in the harvest home dinner Bruno come here let me give you some tips but the thing is is that in every case I'm learning that my children are just not listening because my word is temporary (laughs) 
it goes one ear out the other, and if they listen to it, it does, doesn't last very long, and I'm in trouble. My wife maybe has a better voice, a better listening voice, but for me, I've slowly given up. She has to keep nudging at me, saying, no, 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 we got to keep on the kids here. And so it's important to understand when God speaks, it's eternal. God is eternal. Jesus, the Son, the incarnate Messiah, is eternal, the God-man. And so when he speaks, he's speaking to us with the importance of a few things. One is that he's revealed his Son in the world. That's one. Number two, he represents his essence through his Son. Verse three, he is the radiance, the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Verse 3 is important because it's broken down into various areas. But we're going to talk about representing his essence. Jesus is representing the essence of the Father. And it's important to understand that because in the light of the context written in the first century, as I've told you before... False teachers were always trying to fight against this thought that Jesus was actually God. And the dualism that affected it was that they were constantly fighting against. So the author wanted to highlight that Jesus Christ is God. Also, to the Jews who were traditional, to the Jews who were mystical, to the Jewish legalists, he had to highlight that. But an exact representation... What he means by that is an engraving on a wood, metal, or a brand of an animal hide, an impression on a clay, a stamp on a coin. When people see a stamp on a coin, they know what that represents. That represents authority. When they had a coin in Rome, they would put the emperor on that coin because of authority. With Jesus, in the very essence of God, he's of nature God, but yet he has a different role. And that role plays different as the son. So when he does so, it's important that he represents the father. That's why he said that I and the father are one. And so here's where we understand that was God's priority to send the son, the Missio Dei. Three, to reflect his glory through his son. See, the glory of God has been revealed and reflected through the son. God came in his magnificent glory through his son grace and truth as we see in the book of john it's supernatural but i was having my i was really having my devotional yesterday and i said god really speak to me i want to hear your voice and i'm going through the book of john in my devotional and i came across in chapter 11 and when i was reading it it just i stopped at a verse and it just i was moved by it and that verse that just hit me was this i'm going to read it to you jesus was uh, coming across the time of the death of lazarus And he says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So sister sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then verse 4, I stopped here. He said, but when Jesus heard, he said, the illness does not lead to death, this illness. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I said, now, wait a minute, Lord, are you lying? (laughs) Are you not telling the truth? We know Lazarus is going to die. But wait a minute, someone would say, we already know what the story is going to turn out to be. But at that moment, he said, it will not lead to death. 
What was Jesus saying? Jesus, before he even died for sin, already spoke eternity future. He spoke about the exaltation of him sitting at the right hand of the Father. When I sat there, I said, wow, Lord, your glory, what is so amazing is that you take what is dead and make it alive. That's the glory of God. See, when you and I were dead in our sin and he made us alive in Christ, as it says in Ephesians, that's the glory of God. But you and I are billboards for the kingdom of God wherever we go and you and I can reflect his glory because Jesus is reflecting the glory of the Father. Often does he say, even in the book of of John in chapter 17, he states that too, that Father, glorify yourself as you have glorified your Son. Because the glory that is imposed in us is through the power of the Holy Spirit and that God has given us that authority and power in Jesus. So when you and I are walking, we can reflect the glory of God. How do we do that? through the character that we have. But how do we get the character that we have when we get into his presence, when we imagine his presence and how how he loves us deeply and how he hungers and thirsts for a relationship with us. But what is it that stops the glory of God? Sin. People sin. Do you know complaining is a sin? Criticism is a sin, the Bible says. Philippians chapter 2, Numbers chapter 11. God the Father said it's evil in his ear. It's ra. The Hebrew word ra. When you go, ah, he says ra. Because God is saying, I don't want to hear it. It's complaining. Why? Because each one of us, when we complain, we're saying, God, you're not good enough. And God is saying, I want to reflect the glory that I gave my son through your life. But you need to spend some time with me. So we have that opportunity to reflect the glory of God. Lastly, he rested his authority upon his son. Verse three, again, we see at the very end of chapter one, he said he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Keep your finger there and go back to 1 Corinthians 15. Because when Paul was talking about this at the very end, he was highlighting the importance of faith He talked about faith, but in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 27, he highlighted something so important about the end time. And he says, For God, verse 27, has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all in him. Pretty much what Paul was saying is that God the Father gave the Son authority, the Son subjects it back over to the Father. It's a harmonious unity that exists because when the Father instilled him judgment and authority, the Son goes in subordinate role to the Father. The Father is the hierarchy of the three. The Son is the subordinate essence of God. He subordinates himself in role. So Jesus doesn't do anything on his own, and God the Father doesn't do anything on his own. They work together. But the Father has the hierarchy of the three. So when we go, Heavenly Father, that's why we say Heavenly Father, because he's the hierarchy of the three. But what we have to understand is you and I, 
when the authority has been given to us through Jesus Christ, we have no right to tell God what to do with his church. This is his. This is not ours. And when we fall in line with God, when we fall in line in his purposes and his plan and his vision and his hope, and we fall in line in who he's appointed to be leading, then all of a sudden, it's like I said a few weeks ago, we just follow the leader. Come on, kids, grab the rope and follow the leader. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but that's what it is. It's following the leader. Because if every one of us has an idea and we want to all do it, I can't imagine. All these thoughts, million thoughts. Which one do we go with? That one. I think I'll take that one because I can see it. But the idea is that we have to come together. It's important that we understand the resting thereof. So what are Christ? Here's the other thing. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. If we look in Hebrews again in chapter 1, and we're looking specifically at verse 6, the author is talking about the Son and the Father, and he goes, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world. Once again, many who were false teachers thought that he was saying that Jesus is created by the Father. But this has nothing to do with created order. It has all to do with rank, preeminence, priority, superiority. Jesus is the superior one who, over angels, Moses, Joshua, over the earthly high priest, throughout the book of Hebrews, he writes that the superiority of Christ is the theme of the book. And the author is highlighting that Jesus was the first priority of the Father. And so if Jesus is the first priority of the Father as the firstborn, what are Christ's priority? Well, look with me to Hebrews chapter 2. His priority was simple. We know he came to die. You're born, you suffer, and you die. You're born, you suffer, and you die. That's what Jesus was doing. Born, suffer, and die. That was his mission. The Father sent him, the Missio Dei. But his priority was this. If he died, which we know he did, and he resurrected, he's overcome death. He's overcome the power of sin and the penalty of sin. Not ultimately the presence, because the presence of sin will be wiped away when we're in the fullness there of God. But what he did is he came and he overcame death. So if death is the only thing that can get us, he overcame that sting, that power. Because there's power in death. That's why Jesus brought glory to the Father when he was resurrected and then ultimately exalted. And so what did he do? First, he helps us through our temptations. He helps us through our temptations. Look with me to chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered... When tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What are some of the things that you and I are tempted by? Well, let me give you another Barna Group (laughs) list here of a survey back in 2014 of September, just shortly three years ago. It says 60% of Americans are tempted by anxiety and fear. It might be one of us here in this room. 60%, these are the top five, by the way, 60% deal with procrastination. Hmm. If you're an ordered, organized individual, how many of you don't like procrastination? (laughs) 
I can guarantee you don't. But then how many of you who procrastinate can't stand someone who's organized? Can I get a witness? Amen. Okay, so the idea is that C is 55, deal with gluttony. It could deal with food. It could deal with almost any area. But it's primarily food. But we need to take care of ourselves. Why? Because we are the temple of God. And as a temple of God, we need to take care of ourselves. Because we represent him. Because we reflect the glory of God. And so it's important for us to do that. 45, deal with overuse of social media. If you have your phone, you have your computers, you have your Facebook, and you don't have to be young, then you know what? That can be something of a temptation. Or 51% just deal with laziness. We're just plumb lazy. That's what it comes down to. We just get to the last minute and say, I need me a break. So it's important for us. But here's the thing that really gets us with temptation. Selfishness is the core that drives us to sin. And when we're tempted, we fall into that trap. The tyranny of the urgent and our passion to want something comes hand in hand. When we're tempted and enticed by things we should not be doing, and I'm not referring to just immorality to any men or women here. I'm referring to the temptation sometimes of when to speak and when not to speak. The temptation of feeling like you need to share something or else. It's that sense of the tyranny. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I did it. And the temptation of I don't want to do anything. Because sometimes we have fear and depression and we're consumed with things. And see, God... The Son is there to help us through those temptations, to aid us. He, in fact, that word able is the same word we use for the dunamis power of God. That's the same Greek word. So God is able through the power that is given to us through Jesus to overcome these temptations. So when you and I say we can't, God says you can because I can do it through you. It's a beautiful thing. Two, he sympathizes with us. Many of us need sympathy. We're hurting. But too often, the earthly high priest didn't sympathize when he had to go beyond the veil into the Holy of Holies to represent the sin of the nation. He couldn't sympathize. He had to do it in order to cover the sin. But what happened was he sympathized. He did not sympathize with the other people. But Jesus himself, he sympathized. Because why? He was tempted, but did not sin. He sympathized because he understood the pressures. He was tired, hungry, and he was thirsty, but yet he sympathized. And you and I, when we're going through our struggles and our difficulties, sometimes we think God is not there. He's far away. He doesn't care. He's not interested in us. We feel like he's abandoned us. God is saying, no, I can sympathize. That's why my son is there for you. When you feel like you're the only one struggling, when you feel like you're the only one who can't get it, when you see everyone else smiling and they're happy, you're like, boy, I wish I could be that happy. When deep down inside you're like, I'm miserable, don't be mistaken by the smile because people are hurting too. But God wants to come in and he's saying, I want to sympathize because I want to help you through that struggle so I can draw you into my presence. Too often when we think God has abandoned us, we're not interested to draw in his presence. We're not interested to go to him. We're not interested to spend time with them because we're afraid the feelings we have for ourselves, that's how God views us. 
or the feelings that our parents had when we were younger, that's how God views us. Or we think when someone tells us they don't like us, we think everyone around us doesn't like us. And that's what ends up God saying, but I'm here and I can help you and I love you and I created you with a purpose and I want you to reflect the glory that I give to you through my son and I want you to represent me. Just come to me. Come to me, all those heavy laden and burdened, I will give you rest. And lastly, he says this, interceding on behalf of believers. That was Jesus' ultimate priority. He stands in authority. He's exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father. And now he intercedes for you and I. When Satan comes in and tries to accuse the brethren, as it says in the book of Revelation, Jesus intercedes. He's an advocate. He's a lawyer. There's a throne room. God the Father sits there as the judge. And Jesus, the advocate, says, Father, he or she's one of mine. I'll intercede. In fact, Paul wrote it in Romans 8, 27 and 34 that the Holy Spirit and Jesus intercede on our behalf. So if we're praying and we're groaning and we're crying out to God, he says, I'll intercede for you. Just call out to me to intercede. How often when I'm struggling, the thing I say is, Jesus, Holy Spirit, intercede on my behalf. I don't have it. I'm groaning, Lord. I need you. I want you to work. Intercede. I'm hurting. And I know that God is there. He promises it to me, promises it to you, and he intercedes. Look with me. To Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he even highlights this, the author of Hebrews, and he says this, Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. When we draw near, we draw near knowing God the Father is, has the Son there that's before us. Jesus stands in, he says, Don't worry, son. I got this, Father. He's one of mine. And I will stand in for him. And I am sitting on the ground on my knees crying, and Jesus is standing saying, I got your back, son. Don't you worry. That's what the throne room of God is looking like. The eternal sanctuary of God is when we draw near to God, God is sitting there saying, come, my child, I love you, I want to bless you. But how in the world could we think that we could advance the kingdom of God by the way we do things? I still don't understand it. Until we get on our knees and pray and cry out with a need and a passion that says, God, we need you to go before us. This is your church. We need you. We got to get into the eternal sanctuary throne room and say, oh God, oh God. We got to cry out and say, God, we need you. But we got to see that need. We can't cover it up. Because sin is what blinds and makes it blurry. God is saying, I want to clear it up. So our priority should be prayer for three things. Intimacy, to draw near to God. We can't, just like I just said, selfishness destroys intimacy. God is saying, draw near to God as we draw near to others. Secondly, intercession. Standing in the gap for others. See, when Jesus intercedes on our behalf, when he changes our lives, we can intercede for others. When God is changing my heart and allowing me to go through a difficult time, 
God's using me to intercede for others. When I can experience financial struggles, which we have, my wife and I can attest to that, God rescues us all the time. So when I know my ministry is now, to help those who are struggling with finances. When God gives us a special needs child, and the struggle we had when she was growing up, and she's 17, almost 18, we cried out to God. Because we're parents, we don't know. We're just, it's like it doesn't come with a label. It doesn't have instruction manual here into how to take care of your child. But what happens? We cry out to God. And God has interceded. Jesus has interceded on our behalf, and we have seen him rescue us. You don't know. My daughter is a miracle of God. My life has been a miracle. My lives have been. Why? Because God's saying, I want to use you. I want to use you in the throne room. I think that's necessary. That's why we cannot cover this up. That's why that's my passion. A lot of people might think, oh, you're just trying to stop us from doing things. No, 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 no. I want to redirect you back to the throne. I want you to be in the eternal sanctuary of God so you can be blessed by him on your knees, crying out to God. That's where my blessing has always been. It's never been in what I've done because I don't have much of a resume to show. And I think God has said, that's why I haven't given you a resume because I want to use your passion to encourage others to enter into my presence. That's where my passion comes from. We need to pray. And I'm not asking you as a pastor here to pray because we want things to happen the way I want to. I don't even know. I tell people, what is ahead of us? I have no idea. I have no idea. But I know God does. And it puts a smile on my face because he takes care of things. Lastly, if you can stand into the gap, lastly is the influence when we help others in their time of need. Look in what it says, not only when I read in chapter 2 of Hebrews, but chapter 4, verse 14 and through 16, it says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, the eternal high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's our influence. When God moves us and changes us and challenges us and causes us, we can then be influential in the lives of others. I can sit here and tell you stories upon stories. But the passion has to begin with you and I. It's about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. See, today we're, we're celebrating Harvest Home. It's great. I'm thankful for a history that God has bestowed as a billboard of his faithfulness and his provision. But you know what? You're a billboard. Keith, you're a billboard. Chris, you're a billboard. Rick, you're a billboard. Lenny, you're a billboard. Tom, you're a billboard. Each one of us is a billboard for the kingdom of God. The greatest influence we could have in the life of another is prayer. D.L. Moody said this, I would rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Jesus never taught his disciples to preach, but only to pray.
D.L. Moody has about 200 awesome quotes. Man was a leader of many revivals. He saw many, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it all came with prayer. Brooklyn Tabernacle that exists in Brooklyn, New York, have many lives that are changed for the kingdom of God. Do you know why? Because they have a Tuesday night prayer that will blow you away. And I'll tell you why. Because they cry out to God. Guys, the kingdom of God is not going to advance us sitting in a pew or hoping things change. It's going to start with you and I on our knees crying out to God and saying, it takes time, it's priority, and it needs to be done. I want to encourage you today to enter into the throne room of God and to ask God to change your heart today. So I want to ask you, as you bow your heads and you close your eyes, to ask God to begin to do that work in you. Ask God to challenge you to start prioritizing your life where the phone is shut off, the computers are off, the TV's off, any distraction. And start not only your day off, but throughout the day, stop and pray. God can use any situation, any location, anywhere. All we need to do is bow our heads before him. So I want to encourage you as we pray, a simple little soft voice in your heart that says, God, change my priorities. And let prayer be the first one on the list. Don't let anything distract that of my time with you. Father, I pray as we move forward as a church, may we be passionate and excited about praying today. And may we take on the commitment to do so. We love you. We surrender our lives to you. And we thank you for what you're going to do in our hearts today. In Jesus' name.